Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Calm Mystery the Man Who Was Lost by Jacques Futrell Read by Perry F. Bruns Part 6 It was 36 hours later that the three men met again. The thinking machine had abruptly dismissed Hatch and Doan the last time. The reporter knew that something wholly unexpected had happened. He could only conjecture that this had to do with Preston Bell. When the three met again, it was in Detective Mallory's office at police headquarters. The mysterious woman who had claimed Doan for her husband was present, as were Mallory, Hatch, Doan, and the thinking machine. "'Has this woman given any name?' was the scientist's first question. "'Mary Jones,' replied the detective with a grin. "'And address?' "'No.' "'Is her picture in the rogues' gallery?' No, I looked carefully. Anybody called to ask about her? 
A man, yes. That is, he didn't ask about her. He merely asked some general questions which now we believe were to find out about her. The thinking machine arose and walked over to the woman. She looked up at him defiantly. There has been a mistake made, Mr. Mallory, said the scientist. It's my fault entirely. Let this woman go. I am sorry to have done her so grave an injustice. Instantly the woman was on her feet, her face radiant. A look of disgust crept into Mallory's face. I can't let her go without arraignment, the detective growled. It ain't regular. You must let her go, Mr. Mallory, commanded the thinking machine. And over the woman's shoulder the detective saw an astonishing thing. The thinking machine winked. It was a decided, long, pronounced wink. Oh, all right, he said. But it ain't regular at that. The woman passed out of the room hurriedly, her silken skirts rustling loudly. She was free again. Immediately she disappeared. The thinking machine's entire manner changed. Put your best man to follow her, he directed rapidly. Let him go to her home and arrest the man who was with her as her husband. Then bring them both back here after searching their rooms for money. Why, what... "'What is all this?' demanded Mallory, amazed. "'The man who inquired for her, who is with her, "'is wanted for a $175,000 embezzlement in Butte, Montana. "'Don't let your man lose sight of her.' "'The detective left the room hurriedly. Ten minutes later, he returned to find the thinking machine "'leaning back in his chair with eyes upturned. "'Hatch and Doan were waiting, both impatiently. "'Now, Mr. Mallory!' said the scientist. I shall try to make this matter as clear to you as it is to me. By the time I finish, I expect your man will be back here with this woman and the embezzler. His name is Harrison. I don't know hers. I can't believe she is Mrs. Harrison, yet he has, I suppose, a wife. But here's the story. It is the chaining together of fact after fact, a necessary logical sequence to a series of incidents which are, separately, deeply puzzling. The detective lighted a cigar, and the others disposed themselves comfortably to listen. "'This gentleman came to me,' began the thinking machine, "'with the story of loss of memory. He told me that he knew neither his name, home, occupation, nor anything whatever about himself. At the moment it struck me as a case for a mental expert. Still, I was interested. It seemed to be a remarkable case of aphasia.' And so I regarded it until he told me that he had ten thousand dollars in bills, that he had no watch, that everything which might possibly be of value in establishing his identity had been removed from his clothing. This included even the names of the makers of his linen. That showed intent, deliberation. Then I knew it could not be aphasia. That disease strikes a man suddenly as he walks the street, as he sleeps, as he works, but never gives any desire to remove traces of one's identity. On the contrary, a man is still apparently sound mentally, he has merely forgotten something, and usually his first desire is to find out who he is. This gentleman had that desire, and in trying to find some clue, he showed a mind capable of grasping at every possible opportunity. Nearly every question I asked had been anticipated. Thus I recognize that he must be a more than usually astute man. But if not aphasia, what was it? 
What caused his condition? A drug? I remember that there was such a drug in India, not unlike hashish. Therefore, for the moment, I assumed a drug. It gave me a working basis. Then what did I have? A man of striking mentality who was the victim of some sort of plot, who had been drugged until he lost himself, and in that way disposed of. The handwriting might be the same, for handwriting is rarely affected by a mental disorder. It is a physical function. So far, so good. I examined his head for a possible accident. Nothing. His hands were white and in no way calloused. Seeking to reconcile the fact that he had been a man of strong mentality, with all other things a financier or banker occurred to me. The same things might have indicated a lawyer, but the poise of this man, his elaborate care and dress, all these things made me think him the financier rather than the lawyer. Then I examined some money he had when he awoke. Fifteen or sixteen of the hundred-dollar bills were new and in sequence. They were issued by a national bank. To whom? The possibilities were that the bank would have a record. I wired asking about this and also asked Mr. Hatch to have his correspondents make inquiries in various cities for a John Doan. It was not impossible that John Doan was his name. Now I believe it will be safe for me to say that when he registered at the hotel, he was drugged. His own name slipped his mind, and he signed John Doan, the first name that came to him. That is not his name. While waiting an answer from the bank, I tried to arouse his memory by referring to things in the West. It appeared possible that he might have brought the money from the West with him. Then, still with the idea that he was a financier, I sent him to the financial district. There was a result. The word copper aroused him so that he fainted after shouting, Sell copper, sell, sell, sell. In a way, my estimate of the man was confirmed. He was or had been in a copper deal, selling copper in the market or planning to do so. I know nothing of the intricacies of the stock market. But there came instantly to me the thought that a man who would faint away in such a case must be vitally interested as well as ill. Thus, I had a financier in a copper deal, drugged as a result of a conspiracy. Do you follow me, Mr. Mallory? Sure, was the reply. At this point, I received a telegram from the Butte Bank, telling me that the hundred-dollar bills I asked about had been burned. This telegram was signed Preston Bell, cashier. If that were true, the bills this man had were counterfeit. There were no ifs about that. I asked him if he knew Preston Bell. It was the only name of a person to arouse him in any way. A man knows his own name better than anything in the world. Therefore, was it his? For a moment, I presumed it was. Thus the case stood. Preston Bell, cashier of the Butte Bank, had been drugged, was the victim of a conspiracy, which was probably a part of some great move in copper. But if this man were Preston Bell, how came the signature there? Part of the office regulation? It happens hundreds of times that a name is so used, particularly on telegrams. Well, this man who was lost, Doan or Preston Bell, went to sleep in my apartments. At that time, I believed it fully possible that he was a counterfeiter, as the bills were supposedly burned, and I sent Mr. Hatch to consult an expert. I also wired for details of the fire loss in Butte and names of persons who had any knowledge of the matter. 
This done, I removed and examined this gentleman's shoes for the name of the maker. I found it. The shoes were of fine quality, probably made to order for him. Remember, at this time I believed this gentleman to be Preston Bell, for reasons I have stated. I wired to the maker or retailer to know if he had a record of a sale of the shoes, describing them in detail, to any financier or banker. I also wired to the Denver police to know if any financier or banker had been away from there for four or five weeks. Then came the somewhat startling information through Mr. Hatch that the hundred-dollar bills were genuine. That answer meant that Preston Bell, as I had begun to think of him, was either a thief or the victim of some sort of financial conspiracy. During the silence which followed, every eye was turned on the man who was lost. Doan, or Preston Bell. He sat staring straight ahead of him with hands nervously clenched. On his face was written the sign of a desperate mental struggle. He was still trying to recall the past. Then, the thinking machine resumed, I heard from the Denver police. There was no leading financier or banker out of the city so far as they could learn hurriedly. It was not conclusive, but it aided me. Also, I received another telegram from Butte, signed Preston Bell, telling me the circumstances of the supposed burning of the hundred-dollar bills. It did not show that they were burned at all. It was merely an assumption that they had been. They were last seen in President Harrison's office. Harrison, 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 repeated Doan. Vaguely, I could see the possibility of something financially wrong in the bank. Possibly Harrison, even Mr. Bell here, knew of it. Banks do not apply for permission to reissue bills unless they are positive of the original loss. Yet here were the bills. Obviously some sort of jugglery. I wired to the police of Butte, asking some questions. The answer was that Harrison had embezzled $175,000 and had disappeared. Now I knew he had part of the missing, supposedly burned bills with him. It was obvious. Was Bell also a thief? The same telegram said that Mr. Bell's reputation was of the best, and he was out of the city. That confirmed my belief that it was an office rule to sign telegrams with the cashier's name, and further made me positive that this man was Preston Bell. The chain of circumstances was complete. It was two and two. Inevitable result, four. Now, what was the plot? Something to do with copper. And there was an embezzlement. Then, still seeking a man who knew Bell personally, I sent him out walking with Hatch. I had done so before. Suddenly another figure came into the mystery. A confusing one at the moment. There was a Mr. Manning, who knew Doan, or Bell, as Harry something. Met him in Pittsburgh three years ago, in the Lincoln Club. It was just after Mr. Hatch told me of this man that I received the telegram from the shoemaker in Denver. It said that he had made a shoe such as I described within a few months for Preston Bell. I had asked if a sale had been made to a financier or banker. I got the name back by wire. At this point, a woman appeared to claim John Doan as her husband. With no definite purpose save general precaution, I asked Mr. Hatch to see her first. She imagined he was Doan and embraced him, calling him John. Therefore, she was a fraud. 
She did not know John Doan or Preston Bell by sight. Was she acting under the direction of someone else? If so, whose? There was a pause as the thinking machine readjusted himself in the chair. After a time, he went on. There are shades of emotion, intuition, call it what you will, so subtle that it is difficult to express them in words. As I had instinctively associated Harrison with Bell's present condition, I instinctively associated this woman with Harrison, for not a word of the affair had appeared in a newspaper. Only a very few persons knew of it. Was it possible that the stranger Manning was backing the woman in an effort to get the ten thousand dollars? That remained to be seen. I questioned the woman. She would say nothing. She is clever. But she blundered badly in claiming Mr. Hatch for her husband. The reporter blushed modestly. I asked her flatly about her drug. She was quite calm, and her manner indicated that she knew nothing of it, yet I presume she did. Then I sprung the bombshell, and she saw she had made a mistake. I gave her over to Detective Mallory, and she was locked up. This done, I wired to the Lincoln Club in Pittsburgh to find out about this mysterious Harry who had come into the case. I was so confident that I also wired to Mr. Bell in Butte, presuming that there was a Mrs. Bell, asking about her husband. Then Manning came to see me. I knew he came because he had remembered the name he knew you by. And the thinking machine turned to the central figure in this strange entanglement of identity. Although he seemed surprised when I told him as much. He knew you as Harry Pillsbury. I asked him who the woman was. His manner told me that he knew nothing whatever of her. Then it came back to her as an associate of Harrison, your enemy, for some reason, and I could see it in no other light. It was her purpose to get hold of you and possibly keep you a prisoner, at least until some gigantic deal in which Copper figured was disposed of. That was what I surmised. Then another telegram came from the Lincoln Club in Pittsburgh. The name of Harry Pillsbury appeared as a visitor in the book in January, three years ago. It was you. Manning is not the sort of man to be mistaken. And then there remained only one point to be solved as I then saw the case. That was an answer from Mrs. Preston Bell. If there was a Mrs. Bell, she would know where her husband was. Again, there was silence. A thousand things were running through Bell's mind. The story had been told so pointedly and was so vitally a part of him that semi-recollection was again on his face. That telegram said that Preston Bell was in Honolulu, that the wife had received a cable dispatch that day. Then, frankly, I was puzzled. So puzzled, in fact, that the entire fabric I had constructed seemed to melt away before my eyes. It took me hours to readjust it. I tried it all over in detail. And then the theory which would reconcile every fact in the case was evolved. That theory is right. As right as two and two make four. It's logic. It was half an hour later when a detective entered and spoke to Detective Mallory aside. Fine, said Mallory. Bring him in. Then there reappeared the woman who had been a prisoner, and a man of fifty years. Harrison, exclaimed Bell suddenly. 
He staggered to his feet with outstretched hands. Harrison, I know, I know. Good, good, very good, said the thinking machine. Bell's nervously twitching hands were reaching for Harrison's throat when he was pushed aside by Detective Mallory. He stood pallid for a moment, then sank down on the floor in a heap. He was senseless. The thinking machine made a hurried examination. Good, he remarked again. When he recovers, he will remember everything except what has happened since he has been in Boston. Meanwhile, Mr. Harrison, we know all about the little affair of the drug, the battle for new copper workings in Honolulu, and your partner there has been arrested. Your drug didn't do its work well enough. Have you anything to add? The prisoner was silent. Did you search his rooms? asked the thinking machine of the detective who had made the double arrest. Yes, and found this. It was a large roll of money. The thinking machine ran over it lightly. Seventy thousand dollars, scanning the numbers of the bills. At last he held forth half a dozen. They were among the twenty-seven reported to have been burned in the bank fire in Butte. Harrison and the woman were led away. Subsequently, it developed that he had been systematically robbing the bank of which he was president for years, was responsible for the fire, at which time he had evidently expected to make a great haul, and that the woman was not his wife. Following his arrest, this entire story came out. Also the facts of the gigantic copper deal, in which he had tried to rid himself of Bell, who was his partner, and had sent another man to Honolulu in Bell's name to buy up options on some valuable copper property there. This confederate in Honolulu had sent the cable dispatches to the wife in Butte. She accepted them without question. It was a day or so later that Hatch dropped in to see the thinking machine and ask a few questions. How did Bell happen to have that ten thousand dollars? It was given to him, probably, because it was safer to have him rambling about the country not knowing who he was, and to kill him. And how did he happen to be here? That question may be answered at the trial. And how did it come that Bell was once known as Harry Pillsbury? Bell is a director in United States Steel, I have since learned. There was a secret meeting of this board in Pittsburgh three years ago. He went incog to attend that meeting and was introduced at the Lincoln Club as Harry Pillsbury. Oh, exclaimed Hatch. That's the end of The Man Who Was Lost by Jacques Futrell. Join us next time as we begin another tale of mystery, mayhem, and murder to lull you to sleep on Calm Mystery. Have a killer night. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own Murder Mystery Party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, Maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.